You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Hello, welcome to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to dissect horror films, both old and new. We're deep down in lockdown at the moment. There's lots of crazy stuff going on outside in the big bad world. Um, what better time to then open up um, old films, kind of nostalgic senses, evoking those emotions we had of yesteryear and start streaming some of these films. You may not have caught the first time around. You've heard their classics and you've gone, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that one. I'll get to that one. This one is probably a perfect prime example of a movie that you have to have to have to see and you may have heard of it before it's called peeping tom and we're looking at it today because it's celebrating its 60th anniversary yes 60 don't run away to the hills just because of that age i really recommend this one but we'll get into the the uh the nitty-gritty of exactly why I'm say, sounding so animated in this podcast as we kind of get into the, the guts of it, as we say, um, when we start dissecting the film itself. I'm rambling, should introduce myself. My name is Saul Murto. I'm the host of the podcast series, and I'm joined for the discussions by Miles Davies. Welcome aboard, Miles. Glad to be aboard. So uh, I'm I, I'm ranting I'm ranting but there's a reason for that because I, I I do I do I have only watched this film maybe uh, I I could count them on on my hand it's a ha- it's not it's not as much as this film probably deserves and that's probably something that I want to tap into a little bit as well as we kind of start talking about the film but before we do that there's a reason that you were thrust into the frenzy of this discussion for the podcast episode and that's because you are a, you are a big fan of Michael Powell the director and I'd like you to just oh, if you wouldn't mind just touching on that and why what is it about Powell that um resonates for you so highly as a film director you know what's funny it's it's i I have a strange relationship with Michael Powell and, mm. and, and, and his old partner, Emmerich Pressburger. Um, I grew up in England, so any time, any Sunday afternoon, they would always have one of their movies on, on BBC Two or on as a Sunday afternoon movie somewhere. So it was always like, I know where I'm going. I, uh, a Canterbury Tale, I don't even know how many times I've seen A Canterbury Tale. Yeah. Uh, and a matter of life and death, which is my absolute all-time favorite movie of all time, and the Red Shoes, of course, and just <laughs> Tales of Hoffman, Scarlet Pimpernel, Forty Nine Parallel, blah blah blah, like, <laughs> and it goes on and so, goes on. And I was I was in a bookshop. I was in Gould's bookshop one Saturday, yeah, um, uh, about twenty odd years ago, and I was walking around and I was looking in the film section. And, and I saw this book, Life in Movies, by Michael Powell. And it was, his auto, it was part one of his autobiography. Yeah. And, and so there's, there's a Life in Movies and then there's a Million Dollar Movie. Yep. Uh, Life in Movie. And it, it's the strangest narrative. It jumps back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Mm. But it tells the story about this director. And he, he, he starts off by saying, because he started off in the industry very, very early in the industry, like in the 1920s in France, when all the Hollywood movies were all filmed in France because that's where all the life was. <laughs> they had to set up there. And, and he went over there for, for some reason. He was over there with his dad or something. Ended yep. up in a job working on one of the film sets. And he started talking about the film directors. And he goes, we became artists in an art form that had yet to be made. And I went, fuck, that's good. <laughs> and, well, 
that just grabbed me from from the get go, and then I was just I, I suddenly I then had I had a background for all of my favorite movies. Yeah, and yeah. so I read this book back and forth, and then I got into a million dollar movie, and then it got get, goes up to Peeping Tom, and you know what? That's where I stopped. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't uh-huh. get much further than Peeping Tom because we all know. Well, well, I don't know. I don't know what everybody knows. This was the movie that destroyed his career. Yes, that's right. And just he was at the peak of his game, and was just in the in. He was the director of of England and and almost America. Like he was friends with Hitch, Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, in fact, Hitchcock recommended Kim Hunter uh, to him for Matter of Life and Death. Okay, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he actually started off as, as a stills photographer for Hitchcock yes. during the quarter, quarter studio days when the Hitchcock started off making films in, in Britain. And so this just film just absolutely decimated him because the reviews were just fucking woeful. The, they just did not understand because what they had with him before, yeah. they had these beautiful artistic films, yes. um, ballet films, um, you know, romance, all of these like nice middle of the road films. And then he comes out with this film, the yeah. first ever, what's known as the first ever slasher film. Yeah. And nobody knew what the fuck they were looking at. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it now, you go, fuck, it's genius. Wait, yeah. it was time. Yes. But at the time, it just destroyed him. So you look at his credits afterwards. He came over to Australia. We did a couple of movies. He did yeah. a Weird Mob. And uh, what was the other one? Was it Kangaroo? Was it the D.H. Lawrence one? Uh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, no, no. Um, I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah. Um, but he did, yeah. He did uh, like two know. movies over here and helped set up um, the uh, government filming uh, finance body. Yes, yeah. And then he went back to England and just basically ended up in a, in a one-bedroom bedsit. And that's where years later, like 10 years later, um, Scorsese, Martin Scorsese yeah. and Christopher Coppola were looking for him. Yes. Because Scorsese loved him. He loved red shoes. Yeah. And, um, and he looked for him and he found him in this bedsit and said, mate, get over to here and, <laughs> and come to America and work as a consultant for, for me, like in a sort of made-up role almost. Yeah, he yeah. Sort of, he assisted this, these, these two young filmmakers, Scorsese and, and Coppola. And then got a job in a university and ended up marrying, I think he was in his, Powell was in his probably 50s or 60s at that time. And then yeah. married uh, the very young 30-year-old uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. Yeah, that's right. His, yeah. His editor. And now she runs his, um, uh, uh, his uh, all of his films. She, she, she does all the that's right that's right uh, yeah yeah estate. and so it's he's got an incredible story i highly recommend reading the books they're massive reads but there's so much in there and it's yeah just, I, I i literally um i stumbled across that just li- literally in the documentaries um that i was watching in the research for this and mm. they were talking about it because it was um it was the people behind the you know the ceo of um lumiere who basically mm. kind of um endorsed that and got that kind of up and running and helped him with those books um and i was just like oh i i need i need to read these i have to read them and i was trying to jump online to see if i could find any but i couldn't get any that were a decent price anyway um mm. so but yeah it kind of made me um i really want to read that because i was just like I, i've got to get my head into i've got to get my head into that you know 
They really aren't like his autobiographies are the must read for any film fan. Yeah. Especially, you know, being a Brit, you know, this, this guy set up the English, he was one of the pioneers in the industry. Yeah. And, and so he will tell like he, and he tells you the story of, of British cinema, how it was set up with the quarter days with Ealing and all of those Pinewood studios. Yeah. Uh, So he goes through it all and it's just, it's it's an incredible read. Yeah. Just any film fan would just be like, losing their minds and it's, it's funny I, I was reading my I was reading first time I ever read the Life on Movies book I was sitting on the train station and that's where um, uh, and, and this girl uh, sitting next to me on the train platform and she said hi I'm Shelley and I said hi I'm Miles and then years later I ended up marrying her no so, way oh yeah. that's cool so, <laughs> reading? and i said i'm reading this amazing book <laughs> ranting about her about this book to her and she went she went mate you just you ranted at me when you first met me and i was like no it's so funny about the book <laughs> that's cool i love it i love it um by the way just going back to what we were saying uh, that film we were talking about was the age of consent um, Norman Lindsay, oh, Norman Lindsay novel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, like, and as an aside, I'm, I don't know. I need to get in touch with my mate. He write, he helps write kind of scripts and things. And he got charged with somebody to uh, adapt a couple of Norman Lindsay novels. Um, I wonder how he's going with that. I should, I should lean out. Anyway, that's I'll cut all that out. But that's just reminding me. I need to get in touch with him. See how he's going. Um, yeah. So what was I saying? So, yeah. So, so, but what does that say about the industry though, to have that kind of a knee jerk reaction to something, um, like, like if we put it in a context now, right. If, is there an equivalent kind of film director who's come out and made something so, um, life altering or life changing that everyone has, um, balked at them? and their work can you think of something like that that's happened more recent in recent times or are we more forgiving or kind of willing to allow experimentation to come through i think there's just different <laughs> critics are always going to be outraged about something yeah so these days it's the um you know it's the netflix era so they're pissed off about netflix making all these quality movies and they're going, nobody's coming to the cinema anymore. We had the same discussion like, you know, 30 odd, 40 odd years ago with, um, uh, what was it, the Jean Luc Godard film, Chambre yeah. 666. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it's all about, is TV killing the cinema industry? It was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Not both. laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing that's killing the cinema industry at the moment is, is coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, people will still go back to the cinema. I love I loved going to see uh, movies on the big screen. So. Um, but yeah, and, and you know what, this, this film didn't corrupt people's minds. It didn't, you know, it didn't make people violent. Nobody copycatted it. Um, so it was, I think it was a lot of real stuffy British re- film reviewers who just suddenly, like, yeah, yeah. for no reason whatsoever, except that I, I don't think they got what they they were expecting, and that's that's what happens with any time a film reviewer gets pissed off about a film, they it's because they they didn't get what they were expecting. Sure, and I've seen it time and time again. They did it with um, I remember the first reviews for the Bruce Willis uh, M Night Shyamalan film Unbreakable. Yeah, were like 
we didn't, this is not what we ordered. This is not what we wanted. We wanted another six cents. Yeah. This is shit. This is shit. And then it's like, and then you look at it years later, all the fans are going, fuck, this is one of his best films. In fact, it's probably even better than the six cents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> film reviews didn't get what they wanted. No, that's right. That's right. But, I mean, originally, originally the, the movie was pulled as well from a cinema. Yeah. Well, that, oh, yes. That's right. So uh, that wasn't what I was going to say. And it was pulled. And yeah. then it didn't really receive a resurgence until like 10 years later when people rediscovered it. Yeah. And, you know, they just went, this is a fucking work of art. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, I mean, that's what's interesting, isn't it? Like, because like, you know, when, when you're looking at it now and people talking about it, and as you said, the, the resurrection of uh, Peeping Tom uh, yeah. and when that came about, there were a lot of, it sowed enough seeds there with filmmakers and, you know, that it, that it resonated with them, that it was such a strong and powerful movie uh, yeah. that uh, I can't remember the dude's name that was talking in the documentary I was watching, but he was kind of saying like, it was almost one of those, you know, um, holy grail kind of films because it got yeah. kind of pulled and yet it carried on with that word of mouth about it and, and, people that had seen it who did like it were raving about it still. Um, and obviously yeah. Scorsese was one of those people, um, mm. you know, and, and we have, we as film fans and horror fans have a lot to um, praise Scorsese about with the resurrection of this. Cause he basically kind of upfronted the money for it to kind of get, um, get kind of pulled out and, and finance to kind of, Oh, you know, get get it all ready for. I think it was for the fiftieth anniversary, wasn't it? It was like ten years ago when it was. Yeah. So he did like the Criterion. Uh, yeah, Criterion. yeah. Yeah. That's right. So. Um, He's got yeah. such a, a strong relationship with um, Michael Powell because he yeah. helped him. So, like, they both helped each other, and then. You yeah, know, he's got a strong relationship with uh, Powell's uh, wife as well. Being that's that's his. That's his editor. That's it. It's full yeah. stop. You know, <laughs> he never uses anybody else. It's just always felt like. Yeah. And uh, so it's so they've got such a, a strong tie to yeah. Um, how that you know it's yeah it's it's, it's nice yeah. it's, it's nice to see the younger sort of recognizing, and I feel, I, I wish yeah. more people would 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 get into Powell and Pressburger and the Archers, and uh, I say the Archers because that that's their production company. So if you see yeah. at the beginning. The logo yeah. pops up of the t- the bullseye. Yep, and there's a little joke that they say. They always know when they they've got done a good film because it hits the bullseye. It hits <laughs> it on. If it, it lands slightly off, it means <laughs> they're not of it. But I've never seen it actually land stri- slightly off. <laughs> we're just we're just always right. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I know what I was going to say now. Uh, so back to what we we're saying. So, like the whole thing about the misjudgment of of Powell, though, is that mm. what's interesting about him as a filmmaker um, is that he, uh, I mean, he belonged very firmly within the, um, uh, you know, with the, with the French kind of new wave scene that was going on, the cinema verite kind of movement, um, yeah. and they almost continue to embrace him one of the few kind of areas that continue to embrace him um mm. and uh and what i mean by that was that he was always experimental in what he was doing um but i think more than anything and yes this has a different tone to the movies that was presented beforehand but they all live in a fantasy world 
Absolutely. Well, there's a fantastical element to them. Um, mm. He's just using a dark fantasy component rather than, you know, light and fluff that we get in a lot of his romantic kind of um, era. Mm. Um, and even the even him on the color scheme as well, like yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful use of color. Yeah, um, I mean, matter of life and death, they they switch between black and white and color, and they mix them both so well together. Yeah, uh, and then red shoes, you can see. I mean, the art direction in in this one was the same. The art director in this one was the same one as as, as he usually uses, which is Arthur Lawson, who yep. they worked with on the red shoes. So it's very like you can see the color scheme is so so in tune with i mean you can look almost directly at the red shoes as 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 you know a precursor to the peeping tom yeah even with you know morishira in it essentially so yeah yeah that's right yeah you know, you know he's brought back morishira who's not an actor no he was originally a dancer yes and so and he um he hired her for the red shoes because um when he went to Sadler's wells uh ballet uh company yeah. He said, I want Margot Fontaine. And they went, you can't have her. <laughs> so so he went, because she was known as best dance, ballet dancer in the world at the time. Yeah. And an icon in, in ballet. And they went, you can have Moira instead. And he went, okay, all right. <laughs> but then, <laughs> and he used her again for other films. So, you know, yeah, he used yeah. her for this. And it's a small role. So, but she only did about like four or five different films. Yes. So, yes. Mm. so yeah. yeah it's, I mean, he like, uses the same people over and over again. Yeah, yes, he does. That's right. So, like, I mean, you touched upon the uh, the palette, and I think that's where I want to go to next. Um, and I know we we haven't kind of we haven't kind of delved into the plot line yet, mm. but um, I feel like there's there's enough kind of themes and stuff that we're talking around at the moment that I want to kind of just let us let the blood keep flowing for a moment, mm. um, because. Um, because that was the thing that struck me about Powell's work previously, not just including this film, is it, 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 oh, it's just beautifully shot films. Um, and um, the opening scene of this film, um, I, I when I watched it, like I literally watched it uh, three days back now, I think it was, yeah. uh, and I put it on and I literally just went, Oh, <laughs> I know. orgasmic kind of chill um, because it's it's beautiful. That just opening scene of him watching the uh, the, the female prostitute just um, by the <laughs> window, um, and it's just the, the it's just such a rich palette. Um, yeah. And I I just went I wanted I want to swim in that. That's just it's oh it's yeah. And I was just and I just was reminded of how how good his films were and mm. we were only a few frames in um and i guess that's why i'm, I'm maybe i'm sounding more animated than i normally am um <laughs> on these podcasts i just i just was like yeah i i, I want to go on this journey again and maybe that's um maybe this is a good point actually to kind of you know start talking about the plot line but before we do that i i do want to just touch on the first time we watched this movie i i I remember I've definitely watched this once before. I remember that it was late on, like I was in Australia at the time and it was, I'd gone to, when I was working, I was working in another profession to where I am now. And I, uh, at my lunch break, I would sneak over to the Australian film television radio school because they had one of the best uh, film libraries going. And I would just literally have, admittedly a little bit of a longer um, a longer lunch break than necessary. I'd, I'd, I'd often hand back late anyway, so it's that kind of industry. But um, 
you know, and make up for it. But I, uh, I would just, I'd go in there and that's where I watched it. I was in like a, a very small viewing room in the, uh, in the afters kind of, uh, video library essentially. Uh, and I watched it. So it probably wasn't the best place to watch it. Um, where something, uh, when you're talking about what we were saying palette wise, um, but I was fascinated with it and I was like, Oh, this, why haven't I watched this before? And I think part of me was maybe turned off a little bit as much as we're talking, we were, we're kind of, we're talking about the beauty of Powell's films. I kind of felt like I'd gone through a whole series of when I was in the UK, did a very similar thing of watching it uh, this time in my uh, uni library. I used to kind of go in there again, bloody excellent library. Um, and I would, uh, and I would watch films in there too. And I went through and watched, you know, like, uh, uh the films we mentioned, red shoes, matter of life and death. Um, um, uh, uh, the life and death of Colonel blimp, you know, the thief, yeah. of, the thief of Baghdad, black narcissus. I, I and actually, uh, no, no, that's a lie. I watched black narcissus, um, at the, uh, Soho, uh, cinema in London. Um, uh-huh. on the big screen. so I, I actually did see that one on the big screen as part, uh, as part of the, bfi thing i think actually anyway oh, okay. that's on the side um but yeah i went through all that stuff and so the, i hadn't got around to watching peeping tom but i felt like i had i had gone through that journey pal's journey and i was like quite content with what i'd seen but yeah lo and behold it was still on one of my lists you know must must watch lists so i kind of went oh, i'll watch it and and i remember being really kind of enamored by it um, and so that was, I guess that's my journey into it. But what what was your what was your memory of first watching this film? Um, how far I back it, did you go? I mean, I, I didn't come to it late until later. Like yeah. when I was reading the book, that I went, I haven't actually seen this. Yeah, yeah. And, and I went, and that's when I tracked it down, and I managed to. God knows, I, I think it took me like a year to track it down. Um, yeah. And so I finally got a copy and. I think I've got like the Criterion collection or something. Uh, I've got the box set of Powell Pressburg. Oh, nice! Yeah, nice. So, um, so I got it in there, I, th- I think, and and it might not be in there actually. I, mean, I think I might have got it as an added extra. Um, but yeah, so that's the first time I, I watched it. But yeah, um, yeah, and it, I mean it's great. So yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, being a horror fan anyway, so it was just like it just it ticked a lot of boxes. For me. Yeah, yeah, and it does, it does, and uh, and I guess like. Well, we're talking like, you know, this is 1960 mm. that it came out. Same year that Psycho came out, talking about um, Alfred Hitchcock kind of connection. Mm. Um, uh, you know, both dealing with kind of voyeurs um, and encouraging the audience to become the voyeur of the voyeur in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, this one obviously takes it to the next level where it, it deliberately uses the camera gaze um for us to kind of see what he is seeing and it becomes an infatuation with the mark lewis character in mm-hmm. that he um to quote um minds cross asia again he says like this is where art becomes sinister and perverse um mm. and we are uh, encouraged along with that the the journey that cinema has with its audience, it, it is what it is basically holding up the mirror to that and exposing it for what it is. And that's exactly, exactly what Mark Lewis's character is doing. He has the mirror um, so he can capture the, the reaction of uh, his victims 
Yeah. Um, so they, they're actually seeing themselves as he is, you know, uh, killing them, essentially. Um, what, the, the, the horrific look on their faces, essentially. Yeah. That's right. And he's, and he's constantly searching for that thrill, that fear that, that is, is uh, and, and capturing it on. And he can never get it. That's the irony of it. You know, he can never get what he's looking for. I mean, the, the interesting thing with this film, with the Mark Lewis character too, is that obviously there's, and this is what comes out in the film, is that there is obviously a trauma background with him and the way that his dad played pranks on him as a kid. Mm-hmm and would film it and did really kind of spark these kind of controversial kind of things with him, which scarred him. And, and he was always searching for that or trying to fill that void again as an adult. Mm. Um, so they gives, it gives, uh, I guess, credit to the way he behaves. And I think that's something that, uh, makes the film that much more believable and likable in the sense that we relate to his plight. Um, and there's a reason for him doing these things. There's no, it's not just like, for the, it's not, we're not talking about a Jason um, or a no. Myers thing where it's just killing for the sake of killing. There's, there's actually a, a psychological reason behind it. Psychological motive. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Which, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. So, yeah, so look, there's a lot, there's a lot kind of going on that makes this not just the palette rich, but the subject matter is rich too. And the journey that this character is going through uh, lends weight to the, the, the journey, he, the journey he undertakes and this pursuit, endless pursuit of, of satisfaction to have mm. that climactic thrill, which arguably he gets at the very end, but, you know, <laughs> the end result is, is a, is a fatality, you know, it's not, yeah. uh, and so it, he basically, it, but, you know, he's in the pursuit of something he will never reach and theoretically doesn't ever reach because it ends in death, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating piece. I kind of almost want to dive back in and watch it again as well. Mm. Like, and that says a lot with a film when I've only, like I said, I've only just watched it again for like, three three nights ago but okay so let's 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 just quickly kind of nut through the actual kind of plot as it were so we talked i talked about how we see mark lewis played by carl boehm i want to say that's how you pronounce his surname and that's (laughs) yeah that like he's a german actor right so this is the other thing that's that's you know i i guess again lends credibility to the eeriness of his role because Mm. it's set in england but he's he's a german and his acts yes he speaks english but his accent is very thick and he not just his mannerisms but because the way he talks is almost alien to that kind of world then he already comes across as a bit of a a a fish out of water a a man out of place and not in sync with the world around him yeah, yeah, and that wasn't a deliberate casting. They that wasn't intentional to kind of have him. It, they had uh, they had someone else in mind, and I forgot to write it down. But it, I think it was an American actor, and um, it just didn't it didn't come about. So by chance, uh, you know, Carl Boehm uh, kind of came into the role, and it's a happy coincidence because I can't see anyone else playing that role. No, um, he's a very 
interesting looking man as well. His eye, he's got quite big eyes, which then lends weight to him viewing these people and, and observing and from the outside looking in. Yeah, the big lens size eyes, you know, they're yeah. just um, always watching, like, just you never know what is going, what's going on but behind those eyes, do you? No, that's right. And he's, but he's, his expression often is quite neutral as well. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and even when he's talking quite matter-of-factly, I'm jumping ahead, but when he's talking to the other camera assistant about mm. the reason why he's shooting this stuff and he's just matter-of-factly kind of saying, I want to preserve these images, in, you know. Mm. In, and he's, he's very blunt about it, which is almost quite chilling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, it's an interesting... He's in, he's just a fascinating character. Yeah. Um, so we meet him, as I said, on the streets, and he's filming uh, this uh, prostitute who's kind of standing on the on the by this shop front window. Um, he's filming her with his camera hidden under his coat. So there's this kind of very underhanded, um, perverse approach that he's having anyway to the scene of of mm-hmm. filming her without her knowing. And he approaches her, um, we see it from then from the point of view within the camera viewfinder. So very, almost straight away, we're, we're like from behind the lens and being taken as we're then following her into the flat. Uh, and he kind of makes his way in. And then we see her reaction to him obviously changing, but we don't see what she sees. We're just seeing her reaction and he kills her. Mm. Um so what what how do you find that as an opening for a film? It's you know these days it's a classic opening. Yeah. You know you've got death. Uh, 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 you know it's standard sort of. Um, it's like scream, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, that's yes. off of a kill, and then it gets into the story. Yeah. It just sets it up of of there's, there's a bad guy on the loose. Bang. Let's let's get into the rest of the story. I love the you know the the fact that we were seeing it through the viewfinder and then. You know, and then we then it just cuts to him watching the movie itself. It's quite interesting. So it's it's um you get yeah. that and I love that image of him like sitting there and you've got the the, the projector screen kind of blasting up in it and he's yeah. hand up against the uh, you know the couch there and he's just watching. Which is essentially you know it's it's a it's an early serial killer. Yeah, the fact that most serial killers take trophies and they didn't realize that till years later. Yeah. So he's actually his trophy is the film. The That's film, right. Film. Yeah. Mm. So he doesn't take anything else except the their last moments, which he can rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. Yeah. So it's super interesting. I wonder if you know the guys at Quantico and you know Mindhunter or something ever watched this film because it actually really is laid out on the line. <laughs> if you, you get the mind of a serial killer, this is it. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Like what I find that. Equally fascinating with that, though, as well is, and I was thinking about that on the in the lead up to our record, and I'm not really sure how to word it, but the way he becomes more reckless, which I know is quite um, serial killers often display that, like there's it's almost yeah. often the case that they want to get caught. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead, but that whole scene where he's then in the news agency and he's you know filming the girl, and there's the cop right outside watching yeah. the news agents, you know. So it's like 
it's, and even in the studio when he's filming them investigating the 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 yeah the, yeah the death he's like up in the in the rafters filming away so yeah. it's just like you know he's he's it becomes very cocky he does and, he does and yeah yeah it's it's really yeah as yeah. as we're saying it's it really is he is a you know one of cinema's first serial killers essentially so, yeah yeah like in the, in the stereotype of serial serial killer yes so. that's right that's right so so we uh, so like you say like we're watching him as he follows that and uh, you know he's, he's viewing the death but uh, and then he goes out in the streets the next day and he's again he's filming the police as they have discovered the corpse yeah that's right um, and he poses as a as a reporter to kind of get around it. And I love the fact where the guy goes, what paper are you from? He said, the observer. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, I was like, of course this, he is. Such a, such a, <laughs> there's a humor in, in, in this, yeah. in this film as well. Yeah. With the, 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 the two cops are kind of a little bit comedic is that they, um, they've got, they remind me of, um, the cops in, uh, what's it called? America Wealth in London. And, uh, uh, yeah. also, uh, uh, what's it, match point as well. Woody Allen. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're a little yeah, bit yeah. sort of, they're, 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 invest, they're, they're good at the job, but they've got a bit of a comedy thing going, Laurel and Hardy-ish kind of thing going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that's, you know, it, it, it gives you that sort of, it's that balance between horror and humour that yeah. just goes well as well. I guess like, you know, well, you know, again, to you bring Hitchcock back into the fold, he said, he always said there's a fine line between comedy and horror. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think you kind of need those kind of those beats, uh, light-hearted beats in the middle of it to kind of, you know. Well, that's it. And it's like um, it, I think Hitchcock said it as well. It's like you scare them, and what's the first thing they do after they get scared is they laugh. Yes. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah okay. So uh, so then we get um, we find out then that. Um, Mark Lewis is a, a member of a film crew. Um, he's wanting to become a filmmaker and he also works part time photoshopping the soft porn kind of um, uh, flicks, you know, pictures of women essentially that are sold under the counter at a news agency. Um, what do they call them? Views. Views. Because if you've got news, yeah. And um, <laughs> I was yeah. like, what in the fuck? That's a comedy That's moment like, in itself, isn't it? With the old dude who's buy, buying yeah, Mark the, Nelson, the yeah. He's he's a, he's a well-known playwright and uh, comedy actor, like yeah. a, a character actor. So he's been in films for years, like quite a famous famous guy. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, it was funny watching this guy asking for some dirty <laughs> And then we get the schoolgirl coming in, and like all of a sudden, he's just trying to hide the fact that he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. I love the the print on the on the on the paper as well. It's like educational books. And, then it, <laughs> and he goes, "Oh, and you forgot your paper." He goes, "Oh, yeah, oh, that's right." <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so then we get uh, Lewis. Then goes back to he what is is his house essentially, but he. Mm. It's a huge house, and he he rents it out, all the rooms and stuff out, and he basically lives upstairs. Um, and we meet uh, Helen Stevens, played by Anna Massey, who again another Hitchcock connection uh, was in yeah. Frenzy, which would come a couple of years later. And she lives basically downstairs with her mother, who's blind, um, and she kind of is quite curious about him 
Um, and from the get go, uh, and it sounds like she, it's her birthday party as well. And all the other people there almost look at him as a bit of a joke, but there's something mm. that she finds quite intriguing about him. Um, and you know, she tries to kind of invite him along. Um, and he's just like, Oh no, no, that's okay. And he goes upstairs, but she comes up anyway. And then, you know, with a bit of cake <laughs> and yeah. a candle or something. Um, and then this is where, but also interestingly off this, it's almost like there, there's this kind of kinship between the two of them mm. almost straight away because he is, is like, he's a very lonely, shy man, but he's desperate to connect to people. Yeah. And he, he shows his darkest secrets to her, not, not the murder, obviously, but of his childhood straight away mm. to her. And, and he's vulnerable, he's vulnerable to her. You know, he's showing her his vulnerability, I should say. And I found that a, a quite, again, quite interesting and remarkable position to place oneself, to be that vulnerable with somebody or willing to be that vulnerable with somebody. And like she's slowly watching this thing unfold as like images of basically his dad, as we mentioned earlier, tormenting him by, you know, shining a light in his face while he's sleeping, throwing a lizard onto his bed and and little things like that, you know. So, and she's just like, what is going on here? You know, like, why are you showing me this? It's it's bizarre. And realizing that he's part of basically his dad's psychological experiments based mm. on fear, you know, and that's what he was doing. He was a doctor, but he was using his son as a guinea pig and deliberately frightening him and filming it to kind of capture that reaction and then write yeah. up these kind of scientific kind of uh, theories on, on fear, essentially. Uh, but the result of that is that, you know, we get Mark Lewis kind of trapped in this kind of psychosis that he can't break out of. But yeah, as I said, so he's showing this stuff and to uh, to the Helen character, and then, as I said, there's this kind of relatability that's going on between. So lots lots of stuff in the mix. Um, and does he does, does is this the part where he shows this is his girlfriend six months? It'd been like two months. Yeah, that's right. Like, yes, he does. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, this was the replacement. It was only a few months down after the fact, which yeah, kind of yeah. begs the question what happened there you know and yeah, we never yeah. we're never really told um yeah. but the dad is very quick to move on shall we say mm. so yeah then we get the uh kind of next little section so this is when Ma- we're back on the film set we we see maura shiri for the shira for the first time uh she's playing uh an actress called vivian in this who's basically a stand-in character um and she he's kind of basically sells the idea that he wants to experiment by doing this kind of doing some filming with her uh after hours and so they both kind of sneak in onto the set once it's closed and we get this really quite laid out scene don't we that unfolds here with her uh as she there's a there's a great kind of switching of relationship at one point during this where he gets her behind the camera as she kind of playfully plays along with it and mm. is filming him for a little bit before he 
he then gets a bit awkward with it and turns the tables very quickly back again and says, okay, I'm ready now. And she goes, oh, Mr. Director, very serious, blah, 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 and all that stuff. Uh, and then it kind of builds, the, the momentum builds up, essentially, and he basically is trying to get her to play out the role of being fearful. And she says, I don't know how I can capture that on camera. And he said, well, let's just imagine that you're being hunted by this. And he pulls out, this is what's, you know, his weapon of choice is this tripod, uh, you know, with, with the point on the end, so of the camera, I should say, camera tripod uh what so what what did you apart from the obviously the phallic relationship of said instrument what what was your take on that does that make does that make sense to you is is that just no pun intended a deliberate extension of the film camera itself and that voyeuristic thing that it's logical that that would be the weapon or is that yeah, I mean, that obviously that, that's the only way he can kill the people yeah. but keep them in focus mm. is he, he's got them at a certain length that he knows because he knows the length of the tripod. And that's he's a focus puller, essentially. Yes. So he's, he's set out that, that length so that he knows that he can stab that person yeah. and he knows he's, he's got them directly yeah. always in focus yeah. <laughs> no matter where he goes. Yeah. So it's I think it's very deliberate of... Yes. Uh, you know, a camera person to do that. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the phallic thing. I think it's just having to a, a, a practical thing as a camera person. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. If I, was, if I was, if I wanted to film someone as I was killing them, then that's probably the way. I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, so with that, uh, the other thing I was going to ask you with obviously the first killing we see is done from the point of view from behind the camera. This is the first time we step outside of that and we're seeing. Mm him take that on and i guess that's the next logical step in the journey of building up the character of who this mark lewis character is Mm. Uh, and yeah we see him kind of like basically there's always throughout the process of it there's an open chest that's sitting in the set and he basically kills her and she ends up into the into the chest and that's how he but he doesn't dispose of the body which i find quite interesting too he didn't yeah. the last body. He's not, he's not about covering up his tracks. He's more about the moment, the death, yeah. the kill, kill of itself. So I think, he, yeah, I mean, we're talking about does he want to get caught? And it's like, yeah. I think he really does want to get caught. He always yeah. wants to get caught because yeah. he wants to be punished and he's always been punished for his entire life. So he just wants to be stopped because yes. you know, the experiment, clearly he's, he's an extension of his dad's experiment. And he's That's a, right. Yeah, of the dad's experiment, whether his dad meant him to turn into what he turned into is a different question. And it's never really divulged, but you kind of get the impression maybe that's what he was trying to get at. Whether, yeah, whether, yeah, yeah. Unless he just, uh, he just turned into the Frankenstein monster. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. He's, uh, he's oh. just the result of his dad's uh, reincar- uh, reincarnation of... Or of his experimentation, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So the the next bit we see is kind of linking back to what we were saying about the two cop characters in it, and mm. they have logically put together the fact that there's a relationship between the first murder and this one. And mm. so then they their next step is to start interviewing the people on set, including Mark. Um, and interestingly, as we said, Mark is filming everything the whole time. Uh, even when they're interviewing him, he's filming it. Um, mm. 
and things like that. And he has a very, very cocky kind of approach to, to what is happening. And, and like you mentioned, he climbs up in the rafters at one point and he's filming them as they, oh no, even on set, like, sorry, I'm jumping ahead a bit on set first before the cops come along, he films the reaction of the actress discovering Morishira's body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like he knows it's about to happen. And he's like, yeah, fascinating. Uh, and I, Maybe, I, I mean, yeah. that's obviously why he did it. Yeah, he knew yeah. the girl was going to go to the box. Yeah, so he was he was waiting for that reaction, and he got the reaction almost like what his dad did. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's why I, I find it such a. Re- I, I keep saying the word fascinating. I need to use another uh, uh, point of my. Back. It's rich. It's really yeah. like multi layered. So it's, it's so easy, and, that, and that's and I guess that's why, like, I, I keep talking about and i said it earlier but i i feel like i want to dive back into it again uh, and really uh, and just re- kind of keep watching it really it's it I, I find it such a he it's his character essentially is what what i think makes it so interesting mm. uh, and visceral um yeah yeah and, and so yeah so he's he's really pushing the boundaries and things and then we get like the breakdown of his character a little bit. We see the softer side of him in the next scene where he's then goes out to dinner with Helen and, mm. you know, he, he wants to film. But he makes him take his camera away. His, his, yeah. his, um, uh, you know, his, his, his identity yeah. is taken, like his traditional identity is taken away and yeah. something has become who he actually should be. Um, and and so he goes on a date with her as a normal human being, yeah. rather than the product of his father's shitty yeah. experiment. <laughs> yeah, and and he and he and he feels happiness. You know, he feels connected, mm-hmm. and you know, and then he's suddenly torn because he realizes that he does feel something to Hel- towards Helen, mm. and that's going to prove difficult for him to kind of break down, like, allow that the walls that are around him to kind of break down essentially. Mm. I, I want to then like, so at the end of this day, I, I want to talk about um, Helen's mum who's blind and her character, because she's the first person that sees Mark for who he is, uh, which is interesting again, because she's blind and it's like she's able to see a, past that, you know. It's such an ancient Greek uh, theatre type yeah. thing of, you know, she is essentially Tiresias, blind seer of Thebes. She's, um, <laughs> so she's the one that sees yeah. who he is. And it's the thing with all Greek plays to explain to the audience, to anybody who hasn't read any Greek theatre, is there's always a character called Tiresias, uh, Tiresias and uh, I, it might change different names in other plays, but yeah, yeah. there's a block there, and they're always like the person that can prophesize what's actually going to happen next. Yep. And um, and so she's essentially that particular character in the tragedy. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. And I, and, and thank you for uh, <laughs> your highbrow statement on that. Um, <laughs> it just raises the uh, the profile. Of Mate, the I'm all fucking highbrow. <laughs> The uh, but no, I I love that day. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a thespian through and through. So I have a massive theatre background, and and the Greek theatre is where where drama was born. You know, so or at least the performance of drama was born. Uh, so I like that connection. The 
so Mrs. Stevens like is waiting for him inside his flat though. Um, mm. I'm back, um, and uh, she there, there's this great interaction between the two of them, and she's and he's he, she's just basically like you need to leave my you know leave my um, leave my daughter alone. Uh, you need to promise me you won't you won't do anything. And he's like, I won't, not her. I couldn't, you know. <laughs> so he's already realizing that he couldn't do those horrible things. He's aware that he does horrible things. Yeah. And he could never enact that on somebody to him who is that precious. So um but she's basically just kind of warning him off, essentially saying, like you need to leave leave her alone. And mm. like he's he's watching the snuff film of the of the murder of um of of uh, Moira's character isn't is that that one or is it uh it's, or is it a different one anyway he's what he's watching the murder anyway yeah. yeah yeah oh there's that great bit where he goes downstairs with her too and she she feels her his face and he's and he says yeah you know, I see you. I see you. <laughs> yeah. There's a psychiatrist that's called out to console right. Diane, the Diane character, who um, is the actress that discovered the dead body of Moira's character. Sorry, I know mm. I'm trying to. I know that's. I never mentioned her by name. So yeah, so she's there's a psychiatrist that comes out and he's there trying to help her through the process. And then it's at this point that he has a conversation with Mark and he's like, I, you know, he got, and he realizes that who Mark is and who he obviously worked mm. with his da- dad, dad yeah. in the same profession. And he says to the policeman after they've had that kind of conversation, he goes, he's got his father's eyes. Uh, all too telling that statement um and uh at this point the police are like yeah there's something a bit sus about this odd mark character so they decide yeah. to get a policeman to tell him and then that's where he the uh policeman turns up with the news agents uh where mark does his photographs of the pinup girls and this is where he meets up with millie the blonde girl that we saw um in an earlier scene and She's played by Pamela Green. And uh, again, I mentioned her purely for the fact that she crops up in a little role in Legend of the Werewolf, uh, <laughs> a classic film. And uh, yeah, so he is there to kind of photograph her in these kind of like risque kind of uh, photo shoots that we kind of mentioned earlier. And this, uh, there was actually two versions apparently of this film shot. There's a more risque version which is the one that I think I saw in the recent version. Basically, there's a shot where it's a reverse shot of her and we actually see her breasts exposed. All right. In the... uh, uh, And it was uh, credited as being the first female nude scene in a major British feature at the Uh time. Um, But it's it's like literally only for a few seconds. It's not like it's, you know... No, not even that long, but still yeah, stands yeah. stands the test of time for, for that statement alone. Yes. Yeah, um, and then like later, like uh, Mark basically emerges, hops on his little Vespa, jaw, and then uh, and heads off into the busy streets of London, uh, having killed Millie. But we don't, uh, we're not aware of that at this point in time, and 
and then, um, but the policeman that's tailing at him does phone up the the lead detective and say, like, you know, I don't know what's going on here. He's just hanging out at this news agents. Um, I don't really think there's much to it. Um, and then we join Marcus. He's come home, and he's got. He's obviously filmed the death of of the girl, and he's left his films all set up in his house. And this is where Helen comes in. We're coming back to the days where you just leave your front doors open clearly and and let your neighbors just kind of go through your, your household. Uh, And she kind of manages to get this kind of projector up and running. And this is when she realizes what he's done um, as we're seeing the murders unfold. And we're not aware at this point as she's watching it, but, Mark is just standing in the shadows watching her discover his secret. Yeah. Uh, so really he's kind of happy. He's almost not happy. He's kind of almost willing to be discovered at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So then he, he comes out of the shadows, as I said, and they start, he starts kind of talking to her and saying, you know, like you need to leave now. I, you'll be okay if I don't see you afraid. Um, but she's kind of keeps pursuing him. It's like, well, you know, that's not real. What I saw on there isn't real, is it? That you didn't actually do that. So she's denying what she's seeing, you know, um, even though the evidence is there, she's just unwilling to kind of admit to the fact that he has done these things. And this is where he kind of, um, there's a point where he, has the camera on her and he's talking through what he would do and he's filming her and he's got the tripod out and he's explaining it. And there's that beautiful shot of the really kind of magnified view of her frightened face through the lens. Yeah. Uh, and she's trying to close her eyes and turn away and he's trying to evoke that fear out of her, but he's also, he wants to, but he's also doesn't want to. He's kind of on this tightrope of not knowing what to mm. do because he genuinely, genuinely has these feelings for her. And mm-hmm. that's when he then kind of mounts the, the camera onto the, onto the wall. And he, he has this kind of stuff, you know, all these other cameras rigged up. And essentially because the police are turning up, uh, and the, the reason they're turning up, sorry, I jumped ahead slightly, is because the body of the girl at the news agents is discovered. They call up the detective who's doing the case because it's a similar death. And that's when he puts two and two together and says, wait, hold on, news agents. Um, and he realizes that Mark's the guy that's behind it. So they turn up at, at Mark's house and he realizes that there is no, there is no way out. So he rigs up these, ca- he's got these cameras rigged up to film his own death, essentially. As he, uh, there's this moment where he says to Helen, you're here to witness this. I need you to witness this. And she's trying to plead with him not to. And he points the tripod towards himself as it's mounted up and he has the cameras rigged up. So as he runs to the tripod, it takes photos of him. Uh, And um, Thelma actually spoke about this uh, particular moment because she said, this is a talking point of, of, film the art of film itself capturing it because it's he's capturing every frame of his moment mm. that's what he's leaving behind as his death scene 
yeah. going to capture every scene leading up to it. And as he gets to the tripod, he freezes and he kind of says this moment of like, you know, I'm afraid and I'm happy or something like that. I'm, that's not the exact quote. And before he plunges the uh, tripod into his, into his throat, um, there is something a bit. I mean, it's still like, I yeah. mean, it's 1960. Yeah. But it's still like, <gasps> Like yeah. such a shocking moment. Yeah. Still. We, we, like, we don't, like, it's not shocking as in gore shocking because it's not no. no real blood seen apart from the uh, trickle of blood coming out of his mouth when he's laying motionless on the floor. But um, it's real horror. Yeah. But it's exactly, yeah. It's that kind of moment of like, oh, my God, he's actually going to – because the very thought of – it's almost like that, you know, what's the, uh, the Japanese um, symbolic kind of um, – uh, I've forgotten the terminology where they where one commits suicide and it's a sign of um, Harry Carey, yeah. It? Thank you. Oh, mind yeah. blank. It, there's almost that moment, you yeah. know, that's that it's alluding to, um, and he has no way out, and he realizes that the only way that he can stop this fantasy because he can't stop it, no one can stop him. He's being blatant about the way he's doing things, is to just is do the deed himself and capture his last moments. What I actually loved about this last scene... It seemed scene, like a setup anyway. anyway yeah, so yeah. it just, he had it ready to go. Like, he did. He did. He like, had the he other camera ready to go. Did. So, and he knew yeah. that was the eventual, that was the the, the ending. That was the yeah. end three of his life, basically. That's right. That was, that's right. That was always going to happen. So... Well, like, and that's the thing, like, you know, because he is, he is essentially making a documentary. That's what he's doing the whole way through it. It's just a documentary yeah. of his own insights and fascinations and morbid fantasies. Yeah. And that is the logical end of his documentary. You, like you said, he always knew how it was going to end um, and it would end that way. Uh, but what I, there's this great moment that I love at the end of it, which is, and it's been done in the, it's been done since, but as he lies there, like Helen kind of, is crying over him but she kind of almost faints but there's this moment where their hands just touch on the floor yeah. um and um and it it, it never it it reminds me it's a completely different movie massively different movie but john woo's the killer the killer uh movie yeah. where they they're both blinded you know the, the male and the female are blinded and they're trying to reach out and hold each other's hands but they just keep missing each other yeah. But it's this moment of connection, and in this case, they do connect because they are the 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 romance in Michael Powell is still there. You know that romantic side of him, and oh, yeah. this kind of moment where they have to connect at the end. And it's I I just love that moment. It's a very very simple thing. Um, it's a tragic love story, isn't it? You can't yeah. have a tragic about love. So. Exactly. exactly. And that's where we end the movie, man. That's how it ends. Yeah. So, like, you know, uh, we have the police kind of bursting into the room and they kind of discovered the, uh, the star-crossed lovers uh, on the floor. Um, and that's the end. So we've gone through that motion. We've, we've, we ourselves are romanticising the film uh, yeah. and for good reason. We've both only oh, watched it a handful of well. times. Sorry? The, um, the, we forgot to mention in the, in the home movies of his dad, um, yes. Portrait, the dad is actually the director, Michael Powell. Mm-hmm. So if you ever want to know what, know what Michael Powell looks like, that's what he looks like. Not only bald, that. Tall, bald guy with a moustache. Yeah, that's right. Not only that, but the boy is actually his son. Yes. As well, um, 
uh, Columba Pal. He's yes. the, and often, like people kind of say, asked, didn't that traumatize him? He said, and he was like, like he's an older guy. It was an older guy in the interview, but he just said, no, it's it's just a movie, <laughs> you know. It's not, <laughs> you know. But they often thought like that was quite a traumatic thing because it was just filmed in the house, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so like, yeah, there's this kind of like, again, it's, it's just, that just, again, that very thing adds the weight to this kind of, mm. it's almost a love song to film, you know? It's, it is. It's like, uh, and I think that's why I, I, you know, I've said this before. Um, yes, this, uh, this is a podcast about horror films, and that's essentially our bread and butter of what we do, but I'm a cinephile through and through i i don't just stop at horror i i love the art of film and i will happily kind of you know go through and watch any any genre and i'm redoing that now as miles is aware i'm kind of i've kind of put it out there i want to watch some films you know from from back from when i was born up to present day and maybe mm. catch some of the ones i missed and that doesn't necessarily include horror uh but yeah so i guess that maybe helps us come a bit full circle with this because yeah we've both only watched this movie a couple of times and yet we are still kind of you can tell by how animated we are of how much this film still impacts us and is that do you think that that's because we've only watched it a couple of times or do you think it's because of the merit of how strong this film is i i actually do believe it's because of the merit of how strong it is it just yeah. i mean I mean, I've, I've only watched it a couple of times because I've I've enjoyed sabering it, and yeah. I don't want to watch it too much, um, just in case it just loses its power. Yeah, you know, it's we're talking about the fact that you're genre diverse. Essentially, this was like yeah. this wasn't a horror. And what we study with with surgeons of horror is that we do a lot of masters of horror you know these guys who make careers in in horror films yeah michael pound did that he this is his, his probably his only time he did horror i mean he, he did fantasy type stuff with yeah with direct shoes as this horror elements and this uh, yeah sort of fantasy horror sort of themes um supernatural themes but it just i think it took a non-horror director to make the first great slasher film essentially yeah, i mean yeah. this film came out like what it came out a few months before psycho it did yeah uh, so it made it exactly the same time so the two of them i mean are clearly you know michael powell and, and and hitchcock anyway had a had a very good relationship yeah and they were probably both you know conversing about what they were up to but it's very you know it's very similarly themed and um and that but they're just both kind of very different masterpieces of horror in a mm. way. Mm. You know, you've got both of them coming from different journey, cinematic journeys of their lives. Yeah. And they've got this pinnacle where they've made like the perfect horror films. Yeah. And one's, one's filled with colour and, and and sexual repression and yes. very British. Yes, and the other one is. Is, is, is is filled with, you know, it's black and white and it's, it's by the night, like it's it's so like scary American, like the subversive American stuff, you know, mm. or the stuff that lies below the surface of America. And so it's, it's such a you know, even though they, they they both came out in the same year, they're very sort of, and they both involve males who kill women. Yeah, they very sort of 
different journeys essentially yeah they are they they, be a good companion piece and i and i'm you know to watch the two of them as a bit of a double feature i think Mm. Um, but that's just that's probably for my own kind of kicks the um we we are going to be looking at psycho in our next season podcast as well just to kind of Mm. jump ahead because that equally is celebrating 60 years this year Uh, Mm. so good to kind of have a little bit of chat about norman bates um, and that stuff but so and so but would would do you think i mean this is a good kind of maybe a good reason to kind of talk about psycho because a lot of people are more familiar with psycho um and it, it has um quite rightfully kind of been put up on that um mantle do you think peeping tom should deserve to be kind of up on that mantle with it um did it deserve does it deserve more recognition do you think oh absolutely yeah absolutely i think it's on par it's it really is on par with, with psycho as being one of the the best horror films mm. ever made basically yeah. Yeah. So it's one of these you know it, it's it's one of these films that you you start the journey with and it just doesn't stop and you just are really on this horror roller coaster ride yeah. of of intenseness and this i mean as we've been sort of dissecting it's just been like so many layers to it that you just kind of read more and more into it you can see more and so it's so rich as well yeah and just like psycho is like it's incredibly rich like you don't but i mean you, you the thing about the psycho is that you, you don't really find out what no. what's happening until about half happening till the end yeah and so but this one you you get that you get all the setup keep drip fed to you as, as you're going along until yeah, yeah. you know the final moment of like this is the end and yep. and this is how it must end how is how is his film should end and um so yeah it's uh yeah it's it's just so sad that had psycho both of the these two directors um went on this journey and one was completely elevated Mm. into the next level and the other one was completely destroyed yeah two films are so good mm. and equally as good as each other yeah but just it's it's just an absolute tragedy that one was you know treated so badly yeah 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 it's really i think if this hadn't if that hadn't happened you'd probably be looking at I think you talk to the average Joe and they, they say, oh, have you seen Psycho? Oh, no, but I know what it is. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You talk to any the average Joe about Peeping Tom and they're like, I have never heard of that film. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I guess that's what I was meaning. Like, you know, I find it interesting that it's it should be talked about as, like, it's it feels like it's still only trapped within the confines of film fan or like film fanatics or people that have studied film i should say yeah but it, it's a bit trapped in wankerville for, for a, mm. wanting to use a better word um because people that study movies will rant and rave about it and we are we, we do we are doing that too we are we're having a big wank fest over it right now right so yeah. but like the um but how do we get outside of that? How does it get promoted to the wider circle? I mean, like I always tend to end, as you know, on asking, would you recommend this to a modern cinema going audience? Um, 
my answer is definitely 100%. I'm guessing you mm-hmm. would as well. But it, oh, yeah. it feels like it's, it's, it's still trapped within that, within that confine. It's 60 years mm-hmm. old now. 50 years ago, it got kind of revamped, you know, as we said, with Scorsese pushing it out there. But it's, it still feels like it's stuck. And I don't know how you get it out of that. Is, is it is it getting too old now to break down that wall? You know, I don't know. I, th- I think it's still equally as shocking. Yeah, and I think it really is. Though you were saying about the the, the Wang Fest and film fans, mm. I think it, it studied a lot by filmmakers. Yes, because yes. It, it's a very very perfect film. You know, yeah. it's it's. Beauty, it's, it's, it's craftsman throughout. The editing is amazing. Yeah. The cinematography is amazing. The art design is amazing. The script is so layered. Like, I mean, it was written by a guy who was a cryptographer during the, the um, Second World War. Yes, that's and right. Yeah. Leo Marx. And, and so it was, and so it's got, and it, all the actors are so good in it. And it's just, everything just ticks boxes of yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And it's just, and it, all it took was a bunch of fucking wanker. <laughs> to just kind of bury it, yeah. It's a shame. And that, it really that's a just, shame. A, I mean, it, unfortunately, that's just the way it goes sometimes, isn't yeah. it? It's just, it only takes like just a couple of guys just to completely destroy a career. I know, I know. And that's right. And that's like you say, that's why it's, it's, it's sacrilegious, really, that it's kind of come to that. And mm. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm finding that yes, it caught me when I first watched it and it's still stuck with me since then. And upon repeat viewing and you can tell like it's still very uh, young in the sense that of me watching it, as I said, a few days ago, but it's the fact that I'm still sounding as animated a few days after the fact, I think says a lot about how much it means to me as a film. And mm. I do want to go back there, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying about maybe giving it a bit of breathing space before I do that. But, um, but yeah, I just like, I th- maybe we'll just end on, on that note of just kind of saying like, if you, if it is one of those movies, as I said, like, you know, I came at it at a very late, late stage. And if it has been put on your, on the back burner and you've heard about this film called Peeping Tom, um, and I've been a bit unwilling to go there, or, or keep putting it back on the on the on the on the shelf, or or, or what, whatever way that you've kind of come across it and and haven't gotten around to watching it. I now's the time to do it. You know, like if you've got a little mm. bit of spare time, it's only it's only just over an hour and a half long. You know, it's not it's not uh, it's not a long feature. Um, and as we say, it doesn't stop. It's like no, it got yeah. dance. And it's got horror, it's got comedy, it's got like, you know, it's, yeah. it, it really is, it, you do not notice the time go. You like right. something at the end. I mean, we were just talking about the, 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 the plot itself and it was just, even the plot itself, you're just talking about it going, and then suddenly it's end, ended. And it's, yeah. We've had discussions where we've had the bare minimal plot. <laughs> and, and even after like half an hour, you just go, fuck me, how long has this podcast gone for? I know, I know. Huh? <laughs> Whereas, you know, we're probably talking about it for an hour and it's just like, bang, bang, bang. There's so much going on. It's that great. you will it's not be disappointed. That's not, I like, and I, and I don't often quote movie review and websites, but Rotten Tomatoes still has it at 96%. Um, oh wow! It's tomatoometer that they do. Uh, the audience score yeah. is at eighty-five percent. That's still pretty freaking high. Uh, yeah. It just kind of goes to show that it, it does click. It's, it does resonate 
with its audience still. And I think our consensus here at the Surgeons of Horror team is that it does. You should go and watch this. If you're a fan of horror films and if you're a fan of slasher and that kind of uh, early voyeuristic kind of camera POV stuff, you might argue that that's been done to death. But if you want to see the the genesis of where that began, you've got to do yourself a favor and check that out. Cool. And I think on that note, we will end the podcast. Uh, but thank you, as always, for listening and uh, tuning into these uh, sessions as we dissect the horror films that we love, both old and new. Uh, we hope you're staying safe and keeping uh, the uh, social distancing going and uh, keeping yourself kind of within your house as much as possible and looking after yourself and your family. Um, and we will ride through this together and we will kind of continue to discuss more horror films down the track until then i'm your host as always saul Marte, and i'd like to extend my thanks to my co-host again for this podcast miles davies thanks see ya goodbye Bye. you're listening to the surgeons of horror podcast music supplied by peter nezik for more discussions or podcasts head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.